All right, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to take it out this morning to the book of Genesis chapter 3. And uh, if you remember last week, if you were here, we began an, our Christmas series called The Christmas Story. And really, it's, it's our hope to kind of talk and walk through the Christmas story um, by looking at all these different other types of stories that are taking place within the Christmas story. And so, uh, this guy named John the Baptist, he's really uh, kind of the precursor here of Jesus' ministry, but he's important to how we view Jesus. And so, if, if you want to turn again to the book of Luke, it's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. John is in, the Baptist is in, is in all four Gospels, um, but we're going to look at the Luke account of John the Baptist this morning. Last week, we looked at God's promises. If you remember, uh, we talked about the overarching theme of God's promises, all right? And that was from Genesis chapter, we were all throughout the book of Genesis, then Exodus 2, and then into later on other, other passages, all right? We did talk about Genesis 3 as well, right? And the serpent, okay? But we talked about that, that, that God is a promise-keeping God. We looked at, at the covenant with Noah, that God would not destroy the earth again as he did God's covenant with Abraham, that he would make his descendants as many as the stars in the sky, and God's covenant with David, that Jesus would come through his line. And we talk about how God would, would keep these promises. He made so many others promises to you and to me. And yet, even as good as Noah and Abraham and David were, Jesus is the better parts of all of those. He's the better Noah. Noah saved his family and some animals. Jesus has the ability to save humanity. Abraham's descendants would be great, and, but Jesus has the ability to make us sons and daughters of God. David would be a good king, but Jesus is a far better king. And so as we just continue to prepare to celebrate Christmas, right, the fulfillment of promises brings freedom and forgiveness and hope. And today as we look at John the Baptist, again, it's going to make sense, I, I hope anyway. It makes sense to me, so I hope it makes sense. We're actually going to look at an individual's life who was taking place after Jesus was born. But I, but I wonder if it might be helpful for us to, to talk about who Jesus was going to be to understand why it's important that he was born. Uh, none of your lives have been foretold, I'm assuming anyway, I don't know. Maybe someone said to your parents, one day you'll have a daughter or a son, and that probably was the extent of it. Perhaps as you were growing up, they said, oh, that, they seem to do a good job bantering with you. They're going to be a lawyer one day or a politician. And maybe that's come true, but that's just a pure guess. But John actually kind of unpacks things for us, so we have the ability to look ahead to see who Jesus was going to become. And the hope is that by doing so, we understand more of the importance of Jesus. Next week, we'll get God's people, specifically Mary and Joseph. Why them? What was their response and how it continues to be a challenge for you and for me to be obedient, even when God steps in and leads us. Christmas Eve will be about God's presence, present with us, and then the final week after that will be God's hope. But the Christmas story ultimately brings hope. It's a story of hope for today and tomorrow and each day beyond that. Again, the goal is by looking at smaller stories, we understand the bigger story and are reminded of God's continual story with all of history. 
Let me begin this morning just with some observations of our culture. We talked a little bit about this before. Our family has gotten kind of drafted or morphed into the phenomenon called Marvel. Marvel movies, right? superheroes. And we've watched almost all of them, I think, except for one. We didn't watch Hulk, all right? But we've, as a family, we've kind of just have been sucked in. At first, I was very anti the superhero movement, mainly because everybody was very for the superhero thing. So my personality says, because everyone likes it, I don't want to like it. And so I just began to give it a chance, all right, through the coaxing and nagging, perhaps, of children in my house, all right, specifically one right over here, all right, um, who, who has a love for them. And if you were any bit at all engaged in this movie called Marvel, or even the comic books, right, if you were growing up back when comics were, were about, what you began to perhaps notice was that characters were being woven in all throughout the storyline. Marvel does a fantastic job of weaving in individual characters and then combining them together and then pulling them apart, and you long for more. You long to understand how that group called the Avengers is made up of these individuals, superheroes with superpowers, that have their own sub-background stories taking place, and why Wakanda even cares about the rest of the world, and all of these things. And these movies eventually lead really to a cosmic level decision and battle that concludes with this movie called Endgame. I'd love to know who saw Endgame here. All right, some of us. It's on Netflix, I think, or Disney Plus. All right, if you want to watch it. And the Endgame comes this cataclysmic three hour, two minute movie where good wins over evil. Great sacrifice is given, and it seems that perhaps that three hours at the end of it all, there somehow is a sense within us that there is actually hope for the universe again. It's fantastically intriguing how you can walk away from that movie and think, today might be a good day. And you know it's a movie, right? You know, it's, you know that Iron Man doesn't really exist, though he's way cooler than Batman, all right? You know all of these things. And yet in that moment, if you really really allow yourself to get kind of wrapped up in it and sucked into this, you got done. You were sad when Endgame ended because you knew that that series was over. Apparently not. Apparently there's more to come, right? But then all these things, and yet you were invigorated because, man, there's hope it seems. That phenomena that took three, $356 million to make called Endgame grossed $2.798 billion in box office sales alone. That's a great return on investment, isn't it? But what does that tell you? What does that strategic, record-breaking movie with multiple storylines, character development, in the midst of dark times, what does it tell you when hope can be seen again? That we as a people are longing for hope. I actually think it's a culture observation far beyond just entertainment value. I think... The success of that sale was wrapped up so well in all of those things that linked us to some sense of hope in the world. With a broken political system, 
where it seems like the brink of war is on every country at every possible moment, when we're unsure about the economic future of all things, we are grasping at whatever we can, even entertainment, to bring us hope in today's culture. I was talking to a friend of mine who this last week bought this 4K 65-inch TV. He said it's unbelievable how clear things look. It looks so real that you can tell when it's computer animated because it can't keep up with the realness of actual 4K footage. That's fascinating, but what does that tell you? That we want to see things so vividly and with so much clarity. We want to see fantastic things happen. And I think that's so true. I think that people, us, you and me, we want to have a sense that in our world, good can still triumph over evil and that the chaos of life can be set aside even just for brief moments so that love stories and deep friendships and sacrifice for good can still take place. I mean, Endgame would not have done so well if the preceding movies have not built it up to be done together. And ultimately, it reveals that we as a people long for much more than the routine and the mundane. And I think there actually is a connection here in a few ways to the Christmas story. So last week, again, we talked about the birth of Jesus was not this last-ditch effort by God just to kind of throw in the mix a saving plan, but this was part of his good plan. This was part of his rescue plan to restore the relationship that was broken in the Garden of Eden. That's why Jesus came. Sin had entered the world. It needed to be rescued. It is broken. And listen, I don't know where you stand with Jesus today. I don't know if you trusted him as your Savior or not. I don't know your view of God or not. But here's what I can confidently say, regardless of where you land right now. You know that things don't seem as good as they maybe could be. Like life doesn't seem as good as it could be. And how do I confidently know that? Because you ached at some point in the last seven days. Something in your body didn't quite feel right. You were depressed. You struggled with oppression. You had a hard hour. And that gave you a sense of, man, this doesn't seem like it. I mean, should there be more? You may not process it that way. You may not have come to that conclusion, but deep within you, if you were to step back and think about it, it would reveal very quickly that something is broken in our world. Today, as we continue with this Christmas story, we're going to see it come into a perhaps different view through the life of John the Baptist, also known as John the Baptizer. He is not the father of the Baptist denomination, okay? but he's known by what he was doing. So who is this John the Baptist? Just some background for you. John was the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. He was uh, promised to them. An angel came to Zechariah when he was uh, acting as a priest before the Lord and told him that you would have a son in your old age. Zechariah did not believe him. Zechariah because of his lack of faith, became mute until the day that John would be born, Scripture tells us. John and Jesus were relatives. We don't know the exact connection, but they were relatives here. Um, the other Gospels tells us that as, a, as an adult, John, he lived in the wilderness. Kind of this mountain men type of a man. He wore camel's hair. 
He ate locusts, like these big giant cricket type things, just protein. And wild honey, fantastic for energy. Maybe he combined them, we don't know. So what is the kind of picture that you get of John? Well, his parents were old. He knew who Jesus was. And he seemed to live away from everybody else. So why is John important in this story? It's the birth of Jesus already been taking place. Well, John gives us that glimpse into the future. And he helps us understand more of exactly what type of child, what significance of this child named Jesus. So kind of with that thought in mind, if you have a Bible, Luke chapter 3, just the first 14 verses of that. It'll be on the screen for you as well to follow along if that's helpful. All right. This is God's word. It says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being patriarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, patriarch of the region of Aruria, Etruria, sorry, and Traconitus and Lysanias, tetrarch of Ablenk, during the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all the flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not say, sorry, do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from, those, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not exhort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. It's a fascinating interaction here taking place with John this baptizer. Historically speaking, we think this is roughly the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, roughly A.D. 29, plus or minus. Caiaphas would have been the actual high priest. Annas had had been high priest, I think, until uh, A.D. 15, but he's still around. He's still spending time. And so all that is kind of laying out really just his historical landscape for us. I think it's always helpful to have historical background because for me, it just kind of gives more credibility. Here we're using historical pieces, which are often affirmed by the writer Josephus, a Jewish historian, to help us understand what was taking place. And verse 2 tells us that in amongst all those leaders and rulers of the time, the word of God came all right, to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And that may not seem significant to you, but, but perhaps to understand the background, we can understand its importance. You see, God had been silent to his people. 
the word of God had not come to any prophet for public proclamation since Malachi. Now, you may be sitting there saying, hold on, I thought in the Bible story, didn't the angel come to Mary and Joseph? Correct. But that was not for public proclamation. Here, we have an announcement for public proclamation coming to John after roughly 460 years of silence. And here's where I think we have to pause, because you and I have a hard time, okay, I have a hard time connecting to this. Like, I don't understand a culture where, where God would audibly be speaking and interacting with people. When I, when I read the Old Testament, that's what I see. I see God talking to Moses, right? I see God talking to people. And God had continually done that. That had been his nature with his people to engage him, to interact with them, and to lead them. And then God had gone silent. And so, though I can't fully grasp, I can at least imagine for a moment what that would have been like. To be God's people and to hear them interacting constantly and then all of a sudden to be cut off. What would you long for more than anything else? To hear again. You often hear this in a reflection from a child after a parent passes away. If I could just hear one more time. And we live in this fascinating culture where now we save voicemails from the past. So at least we can still hear the voice. There's that longing of just one more conversation, one more words of advice, one more laugh. And so perhaps that may help us understand the longing here of the people of God to hear again the voice of God. And after 460 years of silence, God was again speaking to his people. And so verse 2, the second half, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness, is a significant word. The God who had God silent and perhaps to many felt distant was no longer distant. God was again moving and speaking and sharing. And he had chosen in his sovereign plan, meaning God who decrees and declares all things by his choice, he chose John. Now, John had choices right now, didn't he? Ignore God or listen. I mean, he had a fair shot. But we see his response. It was not to ignore. Verse 3 tells us, He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. See, John responds with obedience to God's word. And that's significant. Because we're seeing kind of an interaction now that that when God speaks, a good response is to to not just listen, but to be obedient to that. And as I think about my own life, right, and I can read God's word, I can read the commands that, that he gives, which I think are still valuable for today, I have a choice to make. And here, John lays for out, out for us the, the, the right choice and the appropriate choice. And as God speaks into John's life, there's a response, and, and then John's life changes. Now, I don't know John at all. You don't know John, but I guess I can figure this out. Someone who chooses to eat locusts and wild honey and live in the wilderness would prefer to probably not hang out with people all the time, right? It's like a few years ago, maybe four or five years ago, there's a fascinating story of the Northwoods Hermit. If you, ever, if you saw this in any of the newspapers or anything, there's a guy in northern Maine for 
decade was a hermit. And he was discovered. Of course, he broke into camps and stole food and different things to sustain himself. But one day, he just walked away from everything and went to live in the woods. And it's a, it's a really fascinating, there's a book written about him too. But it's fascinating, right? Because at that point, there's now an acclamation that he has to go through, probably through the right, judicial system as well, to reacclimate to life. The wilderness living to being around people. This is John, as best as we know, to go from being out in the wilderness now to being around people. And not just to be around people, but to go and engage people. And so what do we know now? That the work of God, when God calls, when he leads in someone's life, it leads to response. And the same thing is true for us. When God begins to work in our lives, it leads to response. And there are always two responses, acceptance or rejection. And even to say I'm considering is still to effectively reject. That, that's, just, that's just a reality, right? To consider my words as a parent, I'm, I'm thinking about what you just said. But if you're not doing it, then you're still rejecting. But they're still not on board yet. But here we see that, the, that John's response is one that brings about action. It brings about change. Verse 3 again says, He goes into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. See, John begins to move and travel. He proclaims this baptism of repentance. Why? Well, he just told us, for the forgiveness of sins. Well, what in the world does that mean? As John would travel and teach or preach, he would teach about the need to be forgiven. He likely would point to, I'm just guessing here, he likely would point to the fact that, hey, things are not quite like they should be. Things are broken. There is life and death. There is health and sickness. Things are not as good as they could possibly be, that we have issues, we have problems, we lie, we eat too much, right? And we are not always the most... Uh, upright in our decision-making, that, that even we have this thing going on within us. And he says, look, frankly, that thing is called sin. And he presents to those listening an opportunity to come before God, to confess their sin, which, by the way, there has to be no fear of, because God is God. If he is by God definition, he already knows those things, because God is all-knowing. And so John says, look, come before God, confess your sin And sin is anything that's contrary to God, to his nature, his character, or his commands. I think John was teaching this way, confess your sin, ask God to forgive you, repent. In other words, turn away from them at that point. And then commit your life to God, a life that honors and glorifies him. And so baptism was the next step for John in that logical process. See, baptism was just a simple step in a public declaration of a faith that you now claim. You're going to live your life trusting and following God. That's the point of baptism. And that's why we continue to do this today in the life of our church. Why do people get baptized? It doesn't save anybody according to what the Bible teaches. I mean, you can look in all the scriptures, and I would love for you to try to point this out to me where it says you have to be baptized to be saved. You can't find it. So then what is baptism? It's a public declaration of a personal faith in Jesus. We may have a baptism next week. I don't know. Let's see what one of my kids decides, and then we'll go from there. All right? But that's an opportunity for us to declare. And this is what John was saying. Look, if you're trusting in God, declare it. 
And I, and I think there's some legitimacy behind that, isn't there? Like, you can say you're this fan or you like this, or, but, but if you don't declare something and, and back that up, really, what are you saying? Like, the fast analogy for me says, right, sports. Sports is easy. You can claim to be a fan of the Patriots or whatever team you want. Tell me three players. And one of them cannot end with the name Brady. You're like, oh, well, let's see. There's Gronkowski. Okay, you retired. So next. I mean, right. So tell me you're a fan, but show me this. Effectively, this is what John is saying. Look, look, great. Praise the Lord. You're confessing God. Show this. Baptism was an opportunity for people to declare they were trusting in God. They were giving their lives to him as an act of worship. And this traveling and this teaching by John really was was a response in his own life to what God had done in his life. It was a response of his trust and confidence in the Messiah who was to come, that would come and save people. And this response of John was also God fulfilling what he declared in Isaiah. So, right, John, again, could have chosen yes or could have chosen no. John chooses yes. He begins to go and to teach and to baptize. What you see in verse 4 is a quote of Isaiah 40, a flashback to a prophecy given hundreds of years. That probably is in quotation and is kind of subbed in in your Bible. It says, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That was talking about John. In the book of Isaiah, hundreds of years before John was said, yes, I'll do this. And now as John is now traveling and he's teaching about Jesus, he's asking people to consider what it meant to trust in this coming Messiah and to live a life for God's glory. And they're responding with yes, and baptism is taking place. You see, what does this help us see? That John's preparing for Jesus helps us see the magnitude of who Jesus is. John's preparing for Jesus to come as the Messiah, as an adult, helps us to see the magnitude of who Jesus is in the manger. The Bible is intriguing here because we know Jesus as a baby. We know him as a, as a young child for a brief instance when he goes back to the temple. And then we kind of hit the, like the pause button, it seems. We don't know what he was like as a teenager. Some want to say he was a carpenter's apprentice, possibly. There's really no hard way to prove that. We just don't know. We hit about a 30-year gap, probably less, probably a 25-year gap of time. We just don't know what Jesus did. We, we think he was just preparing. We think he was being a son and a brother. And he was being a community member. And he was growing up and getting stronger and eating more food and, and doing the things that young men do growing up, but yet remain faithful, perfect, remained continually focused on the mission of his life. And now we see here John talking about preparing the way for this Jesus to come. Often when we think about this baby, this manger, we think simple and innocent and new life that a newborn gives us. But this life was never meant to be a life that was simple. Jesus' life was never meant to be mundane. This baby Jesus was meant to change the world. This rescuer of Genesis chapter 3, he was coming. 
And he was inviting people to again return to their good king, their heavenly father, God, and to trust and follow him. You see, John's words are helpful in helping us to expand the view of the manger. And I get how we, like, we love the idea of a simple kind of this, you know, animals and hay and, and shepherds. Look, be honest, it was not that tranquil. You've likely, women who have given birth, went to a hospital or a clean home even. You weren't in a barn. And, and you think that's how you want to start a family? In a barn? And then, like, you're ready just to be done because the baby's born and people are showing up to visit? There's no nurse to say you have to come back in a half hour because the mom's resting. It's shepherds that you don't even know. They don't smell good. But they were told by the angels on the field to go. And they follow and they go and they come and they see this Jesus in this manger. And in mixing all this is this simple, beautiful, newborn child who is going to be the Savior John helps us expand the view of the manger. As John just continues to go on and travel and minister, we see this fascinating section in verses 7 to 9. In that he says to the crowds who can't be baptized, he calls them broods of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now, you're smart, and you remember last week, if you were here, Abraham's an important name, isn't it? There was a covenant given to Abraham. It said, your descendants will be as many as the stars in the sky. Your heritage will be great. And so, those who would come after Abraham and be considered part of that heritage, that lineage, guess what they love to cling and brag about? Abraham. Hey, we're part of that group. That promise that was given to Abraham, we're, we're part of that. We're part of those people. It was these people who were coming to see John, and here John gives this great warning because what was happening? Those who were coming to listen, they were putting their salvation into religion. Now, religion in our culture has this kind of touch and go, good and bad feelings to it. Let me just tell you what I mean by that. They were putting these trusts in this religious system that had been set up. These were Jewish people who likely went to temple, who followed the laws, both given by God and those impressed upon them by Caiaphas and Annas and those other high priests. They were trying to know what to do, what not to do, and they were placing their hope to be saved and eternal life in the Abrahamic covenant. If they just do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, because of this tattoo of Abraham, that's figuratively, on them, right? They were God's people. And here John gives a huge warning. In case you didn't pick up the tone of the conversation, you brood of vipers is not an endearing thing to be called. Often as people would gather sticks and things to throw into a fire, first century living, You had to be concerned about vipers and other types of snakes that could be wrapped up in these branches. There was no ER to go to, right? Vipers, man, they latch out and they grab on and they take control and they bring systems down. And John's warning here is that, look, you cannot just be religious and be saved. You cannot just go through the motions. It is so easy to go through motions. 
says, look, if God wanted to, he could take a stone and make that into something significant. Oh my goodness, that is nerve-wracking for me. God can take a chair and decide that's more significant than me if he really wanted to. He's God. And the caution here is, look, just like, lower the value right now that you're placing on all these things you're doing and not doing. John knew that God did not want people to simply go through the motions of saying the right things and doing the right things. That's why for John, this baptism of repentance was significant. It was important. It was far more than just doing the right thing or saying that you're a descendant of Abraham. Right? Again, that baptism was a public declaration like, yes, I'm going to trust and follow after God. I'm going to do this in front of everybody so that they know. Man, that's way more, isn't it? That's way more than just tweeting, hashtag I love Jesus. And then you move on with your day. But for these people, John was saying, look, you need to declare this. You need to have this public declaration of your life that is going to live for the glory of God, to repent of your sin, and to live for God's glory in the life that he calls you to. See, John's warning, again, it's a reminder for us, the birth of Jesus, it was going to shake things up. So again, Jesus is not only significant in the magnitude of who he is, but he was not coming to keep things the same. Jesus was not coming just for status quo. He was coming to shake up the existence of humanity. And not just those he would, he would come in contact to, but an entire system that had been set up. Because a life of following Jesus is about relationship with him. It's not about a system of religion. So do I think coming to worship God on Sunday morning with a church family is a great thing, not just a good thing, but a great thing? Yes, I do, 100%. I wouldn't be here speaking this morning if I didn't think that. But honestly, it won't save you. It is good for us to be together. Scripture says so. It's good for the body to gather together, but it cannot save us. It is good to be baptized, but it cannot save you. A life with Christ is about putting our faith that this child born in that manger was indeed Jesus, this God in the flesh. And his life truly did change the course of the world. And his death on the cross truly does save all those who would trust in him. You see, the manger, this tranquil, calm scene could not be more mistaken. Jesus is far more than this newborn, simple baby. He is the Messiah who will shake the entire world. Jesus alone is one who offers freedom and hope and forgiveness. And John reminds us of this, that God is faithful to send Jesus. And so John is teaching, he's coming, about the coming of Jesus. He's calling people to trust in God, to follow him, to show this through baptism. He's pushing back against the system that was set up of just going through the motions. In fact, John's life, his life is an example for us. His life is an example that, that a life lived in relationship with God is a life that is always lived intentionally. A life lived in relationship with God is always a life that is lived intentionally. I know the word always is not up there, but I just added it. Always. And so there's nowhere, if you were to read the pages of the Bible, there's nowhere that it ever says, Jesus is his comfortable add-on. There's nowhere that says that, that when you follow Jesus, he's like that 99-cent app purchase. Once you download the free version, you've got to upgrade to get the better version. 
There's never an indication like that. It says that Jesus, as he comes into your life and to my life, we trust in him as our Savior, and then our lives are meant to be lived intentionally from that point forward. That everything we do is intentionally oriented around the difference that Jesus has made in our lives. See, as John calls them to answer the question, to ask that internal question of their reliance upon a system of history and heritage, right? It's fascinating because they actually ask for help. Something that I don't do very well, ask for help. They ask for help. Look at verses 10 to 14. We'll wrap up with this. It says, and the, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share it with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors came to be baptized. He said to them, teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? He said to them, do not exhort money from anyone by threats or false accusations. Be content with your wages. See, John's response here to the crowd's question, man, it's so helpful for us today. Because what it tells us is this, is that it's guidance in that when we are trusting in Christ, if that's what you have done, you've committed your life to Christ, your life from that point on is meant to be lived drastically different. See what they tell him, or what he tells them. Generosity. If you're a follower of Christ, you are supposed to live a lavishly generous life. Because I'm pretty sure his advice to the average person was, if you've got two tunics or kind of clothing underneath your outer robe, give one to those in need. If you've got food, give someone who needs food. This was not to the upper echelon of people, by the way. This was just practical, everyday people right here. In other words, live within the place that God has placed you, but do so with a heart that reflects the heart of God. Because what we see in Christ coming to earth is that God was generous in that moment. And I've said this hundreds of times probably before, but we know that that God sends his son Jesus to earth. We know that manger has the cross. Like his, his mission on earth was eventually to go to a cross and to die. And as much as I love you, I would never give my kids for one of you. I would never barter that, I'm sorry. And yet God generously and lavishly gives. And so when we trust in Christ, now that's our model. Generous, lavish living of generous giving. Lavishness, not in the sense that we want to just amass as much as we can, but man, to be lavish in what we give away. And you know what? One of the greatest things you can give away is your time. It's just your time. Because we all have the same piece of pie. It's called 24 hours. I try to keep making it 25, and it just doesn't happen. You know what happens? My slices get thinner. One of the biggest things that you can give to somebody else is just time. To sit, to listen, to help, whatever the need might be. But he does get practical too. He says, look, tax collectors, just be honest and do honest business. And isn't that fascinating? He doesn't say, John does not say to the tax collector, stop collecting taxes and go be part of the church. 
Go be a priest. He doesn't say that. So the soldier doesn't say, stop being a soldier. Go do something more admirable, like serving poor people. And we need those things. But he tells those people, stay right where you are. And when you collect taxes, do it honorably. Do good business. As a soldier, avoid the temptation of using your power to get something that's not yours. It's fascinating. There's a call by John not to leave what they're doing, but to do the exact same thing they've been doing, but do it better because you've been changed by Jesus. Our lives are supposed to be different right where they are right now. Listen, there might be some of you that God's calling to go, to change, to leave your job, to leave the situation because it's not good, it's not healthy, it's not wise. Do that. If God's not releasing you from that, then stay right where you are. Listen to the words of John. He calls him to live and stay, but live differently like you've been impacted by Jesus. See, church, listen. This child born in the stable, this Messiah brought into the world in a simple manner, he would not leave the world the same. John's preparing for Jesus to begin his public ministry and his calling of people to live their lives in worship of God, to live differently because they've been changed. It reminds us that Jesus was not coming to earth simply to keep things the same, but he was coming to change everything. And listen, here's the thing. He still does that. In a culture that longs for hope, for peace, and for a sense that good can still win a battle, there's Jesus. So I would say that that simple Feeling, hopefulness, excitement that perhaps the Marvel series can give you that will quickly go away. That actually can be understood and felt and maintained through knowing Jesus as your Savior. Because Jesus brings hope. He brings ultimate hope to the forgiveness of sin. Jesus brings peace because we know that we're forgiven. Like I, if I understand what the Bible says, my sin, past, that I have done, present, that I will likely commit today, and future, tomorrow, that's already been forgiven. Like I don't need a priest to come play, pray last rites over me just to kind of cross my fingers and hope for the best. Like I have confidence because the God of the Bible has said that I am forgiven. That's my status. There is peace. And you know what that forgiveness allows me to be able to do? Forgive others. It gives me and you the ability to trust others because we have a God who is trustworthy. And we know we can come before God without fear or shame because we've been restored by Jesus. Lastly, Jesus brings hope to our world. And he brings love to our world. A love that sees beyond ourselves and sees the need to care for others. And that is a love that's sacrificial and willing to live generously. That's what Jesus showed us in his life. Look, John's preparing for Jesus to minister on earth. It broadens our perspective here. In this manger was no ordinary baby. This is not baby Jesus. That we just think of simple, meek, and mild. This was the Savior. This was the Messiah. This is Jesus, the rescuer who is coming to seek and to save the lost. 
the Christmas story, man, it is the continued faithfulness of God's promises. And it is continually to be God showing us that he is preparing and has the presence of Jesus. And that presence of Jesus changes everything, both then and now and tomorrow. Let's pray. God, as we just consider, and just kind of, hopefully my prayer is just a broadening of perspective this morning. God, I pray that you would help us to uh, just step back from perhaps, uh, yes, the one side of the nativity, the simple simple manger, the simple stable, the fact that the king of the universe was not placed in a lavish throne, but he was placed in a very meek beginning. But that setting did not change the grandeur of who Jesus is. God, I pray that you would forgive me for how I've tried to morph you to fit my life instead of working my life to fit who you're calling me to be. God, forgive me of those moments where I decide that God looks more like me than I need to look more like you. And I thank you that your scripture reminds us, man, that that you are a moment-by-moment God. That your mercy is new. And even right now, we can begin to just have that grand view of the manger scene. Seeing what life you're calling us to live, not ordinary life, a grand life as a follower of Christ. I pray you would give us the wisdom, the guidance, and the courage to live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.